0: Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm Mary Fran Johnson, your host for this episode and all of our other episodes, and also a contributing columnist to CIO.com, where I write about business strategy and boardroom issues for technology leaders. Twice a month, we produce CIO Leadership Live with the support of my colleagues at CIO.com and also the CIO Executive Council. We're streaming live right now onto LinkedIn and Twitter, and we welcome any of our viewers who have joined us today to to come into the conversation with a few questions of your own. My friend and colleague, Michelle Davidson, one of our editors at CIO, is watching the stream and will be passing those questions along, and we will do our best to respond. Now let me introduce my guest today. I am so honored to be joined by Tom McKee who is the vice president and CIO, and also the interim vice president of strategic sourcing for CannaMetal. Tom leads CannaMetal's IT functions worldwide. And this is an operation that supports 80,000 customers in 60 countries and employs more than 9,000 people at CannaMetal. It is based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh is a $2 billion industrial supplier of tooling products and engineered components and other materials used in the production process across several big industries, including aerospace and transportation and energy and general engineering. Tom is a longtime company veteran. He joined the company in 1981, and he spent nearly four decades supporting its various business and technology functions. Before taking on his current CIO role in 2016, he was the VP of Global Information Technology, where he was responsible for IT strategy, planning, and business integration. And then before that, Tom held a number of business leadership positions in finance, supply chain, manufacturing, operations management, and even mergers and acquisitions. Welcome, Tom, it's great to have you here today.
1: Hi, Mary Fran, great to be here. Wow, four decades, I, I all of a sudden felt old. Thank you.
0: <laughs> well, and I happen to know that because I, my older, my daughter was born in 1981, and I know exactly how old she is, and it shocks me too. Yeah. let us let's i i always like to go up to that 30,000 foot view above the industries and for the last nearly 3 years we've been starting that as the first question on CIO leadership live where we talk about disruption and it used to be that every industry had some different sort of disruption going on a lot of similarities of course with technology disruption but today, we have a global disruption, of course, with the COVID crisis and the impact that that's having on pretty much every industry and every business. So let's start out talking first about how that has been impacting the work that you do at Kenna Metal.
1: No, it's a great question. As you mentioned, it's something that we're all dealing with. It's not like there's a, we all have our unique challenges, but what's happening lately with COVID and the pandemic is really impacting everyone. We're all feeling the same thing. Uh, you know, for us at Kenna Metal, uh, our industries were facing some challenges even before COVID hit. So you think about uh, aerospace, energy, transportation, uh, you know, there were some bumps in the road. Uh, but then COVID has really come in and provided more of an impact. From our perspective, global IT at Kenna Metal, it, it's nice to look back sometimes and say, wow, we really look brilliant. Uh, you know, we've had a strategy the past couple of years about you know, driving mobility for our professional workers. So, you know, all of, most of our professional workers around the globe already had laptop devices. So you think about sending people work from home, a quick pivot in 24 hours, you know, it's not like you got to pick a desktop up, but, you know, get your laptop, uh, you're used to connecting virtually. Uh, we had a cloud migration strategy. It's a three-year strategy to get us onto the Azure cloud. We just completed that last August with our SAP production system moving to Azure so I think you know being on the cloud was also very beneficial for us going into uh, the last several months with the COVID impact and work from home and then you know one of the last things that I'll touch on is uh, and I'm very proud of my team in a matter of three or four months last fall they moved us onto Microsoft Teams globally and uh, you know it was uh, a quick implementation the users adopted it quickly but I tell you, I'd have been very scared going into the work from home situation here a couple months ago had we not been on teams. You know, some of the tools we used in the past just were not as effective. Uh, there was, you know, spotty coverage. So it's nice to look back and say, wow, we were prepared. Now, you know, we, we did this through the lens of business continuity. We didn't wake up three years ago and say, wow, there's a pandemic coming. Let's get these things in place. But when we looked at it, you know, from a business continuity, sustainability, these were the right decisions for us to make. And and then they pay dividends here when you know in March when things kind of got turned upside down
0: Well and the CEOs at companies like yours and the other board members and your other senior business executive colleagues they probably all did a certain amount of patting themselves on the back that they went along and funded these digital transformation efforts because that's always something that IT leaders seem to have to keep doing is explain to me why we have to spend all this money. And I don't think we're hearing much of that these days.
1: No, it's funny. And for you know the folks listening in who are our CIOs or maybe had that role at one point in time, you know we all understand what it's like when you go forward every year with an annual operating plan, you're looking for budgeting, and it's like, well, so tell me again, why do we want to move to the cloud? You know, tell me again, why we're going to Teams? Isn't Skype good enough? Uh, but I have to admit, our CEO has been extremely supportive of our investments in IT. And then, you know, after the fact, you know, he's shown a lot of appreciation toward the team that, you know, quite honestly, we were very prepared for this, and not all companies were, but it really was seamless. And, uh, you know, it's, it's tough on a weekend when the leadership team, make the decision to send everybody home in the next 24, 48 hours. And you just, uh, just, you're not sure what's going to happen, but uh, you know, knock on wood, you know, things have been going well.
0: Well, I've talked with a couple of CIOs that had to do an enormous amount of scrambling to find laptops that they could buy and put people at home. So there are so many businesses in across all industries where the corporate culture was very building centric. You know, you you were established in a big city and everybody got themselves into the office. Um, and so one of the things I've also talked with people a lot about is the initial productivity boost, especially especially for IT teams. But as you and I talked about, your IT team was already... Uh, you were already kind of used to working remotely and all around the world. Talk a, talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure, we made a shift about four or five years ago, uh, where we really built out our captive center in Bangalore, India. And you know, being a global company, as you mentioned, you know we have customers in over sixty countries. We operate in over thirty different countries. So you don't have the luxury of always being in the office right next to someone. And, you know, and IT is no exception with two thirds of our team in Bangalore and the rest distributed throughout the Americas and Europe. You know, the folks are used to working remotely, getting on conference calls. But, you know, a couple of dynamics that really hit us uh, from the the work from home environment. uh, You think about the folks in Bangalore, a lot of times they're spending two to three hours a day round trip, just commuting back and forth to the office. Hmm. And the opportunity now to not have to deal with you know, the commute. that's extra time for them, not only to work, but to squeeze in some of their personal aspects of their life. And, you know, some of the feedback I've also had from other employees around the globe, not just IT, is, you know, I have that flexibility. If I need a half an hour during the day between meetings to deal with something on a personal level, take care of one of my children, I, I feel like I can do that. And what I'm actually seeing is a lot of people are overcompensating. They then start to work a little bit later in the evening. They sign on earlier in the morning they don't want to feel guilty like i took that half hour so you know overall i think it's it's for us it's, it's been a very good experience now not everyone adapts to it well uh, you okay. know we already have like a lot of other companies some people saying you know when can i get back to the office i have to get get out of the house but uh you know overall it's been we, we've seen some spikes in productivity it's been very beneficial for us
0: yeah i have a lot of my cio friends have also been noting that that they think okay the spike was great but i don't want people to burn to a crisp stressing out about work and it's i think it's especially going to be well interesting in both good and bad ways when we discover what schools do next month in september Um, because if you're a parent with kids under the age of what 15 or 12 and they're all still home that's going to have a huge impact as well. We, uh, I had mentioned um, that I always invite our watchers and listeners into sending questions and we already have one. So the question for you, Tom, is have you migrated your core supply chain and other core business processes onto SAP on the Azure cloud and what were the driving reasons for doing that?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So we, we are still on the ECC platform of SAP. We're just now investigating the migration to S4, HANA. Right. Uh, but yes, our, um, about 90% of our business systems are now on the Azure cloud. And uh, so that includes our core ERP, and uh, which really runs the day-to-day business. Now, prior to that, as part of our evolution of the cloud, you know, we have implemented several cloud solutions, SAP Ariba, SuccessFactors, Microsoft Dynamics for CRM, just a few examples. But, you know, the big drivers for us going to the cloud, you know, one, there's always the cost play. We saw the total cost of ownership is an opportunity uh, to drive some savings. You know, we're an industrial manufacturer. We're not a business that runs data centers. Uh, so you know, that's the easy play is the TCO. I like to look at it as, you know, streamlining our IT operations. We could then redeploy assets, as opposed to managing servers and data centers. How can they become you know more innovative? So there was that innovative play. Yes. You know, how do we take you know limited headcount, limited resources to start driving you know more digitization through the business? Help us with our smart factory program. Help us with our digital customer experience. Right. Uh, yeah. Help digitize the internal processes. Expand the use of Ariba, the power platform of Microsoft. I mean, there's a there's a slew of opportunities so you know we saw that as, as a great chance there to take some of our resources and then redeploy them and then just the flexibility the scalability you get with the cloud i mean some of the you know the normal answers you get from people but um if you if you're able to understand it and leverage it there are benefits to doing that and, and we feel like we're able to you know spin up more development quicker for the business so yep. based on the cloud so um, I- it,
0: got, I know you've got a couple of good stories about how that's getting noticed. And and I do want to, I want to talk about those. Um, but I also wanted to ask you about on the sourcing front, um, we were talking about the initial in the initial couple of weeks into COVID there was one thing you had did struggle with was getting the personal protective equipment out because your company uh, and the engineering fields that you're in, you're considered an essential worker type of uh, environment. Tell me about some of that and what happened with the supply chain and the continuity and just getting those supplies. Because Canna could do everything right, but then you could have all kinds of conflicts that come up from your supply chain partners.
1: Yes. Now it, it's a great question. And, you know, it really was a double whammy and, and just as proud as I am of the IT team for maintaining that continuity connectivity with the remote workforce. Uh, I'm just as proud of the sourcing team. So, you know, the same thing, you think about it, we were designated as an essential business. Yeah. You know, our 40 plus factories, we wanted to keep operating and and we were able to keep them open with the exception of a couple countries that may have shut down for a period of time, you know, India, yep. Bolivia, South Africa. But otherwise, the factories kept operating. Uh, But again, you know, we weren't ready for, do I have enough sanitary gloves, the hand sanitizer, the temperature check. So the sourcing team globally mobilized to make sure we could protect our factory workers, our frontline workers that really, you know, they they were the lifeblood of keeping a company going where we can continue to make product, you know, sell to our customers, keep revenue afloat. Uh, So, you know, that was one aspect. And what I thought was really Uh, know, really neat with the global teams. As we all know, China is a little bit ahead of the rest of the world in this as far as recovery. Uh, When they got past a certain threshold, they realized they had some extra supplies, whether it was gloves, hand sanitizer. So we actually had partners in China calling some of our people in sourcing. And then they were then taking, you know, where can I take these products and redistribute them to Europe or the U.S.? to help those factories. So, you know, the team really worked together. Additionally, you know, they worked with suppliers just to maintain, you know, continuity of whether it was raw materials, it was component parts, uh, subcontractors, uh, you know, that were working on our parts. So, um, you know, they mobilized as well. So it was, it was, you know, kind of a, a double worry, IT connectivity and supply chain continuity. But I really, you know, kudos to my teams who just really stepped up to the challenge and managed it well.
0: Well, and you are, and as we said in, you know, said in the introduction, you are right now the interim VP of strategic sourcing. So you've got one of those CIO plus plus roles where you don't get just you don't get to just worry about technology. You're you're also up and down the supply chain. Um, one of the other things that you mentioned about even before COVID struck, there was already a very challenging environment across many of your customers when, if you take COVID out of the picture and the pandemic and all, uh, tell me more about what you meant, about what was what was the challenging environment that you were seeing across customers?
1: Right. Well, I think, uh, you know, if everyone's, you know, reading the news, you see what's happening right now with energy, you know, energy is in a bit of a downturn. Mm-hmm. has a ripple effect on us, uh, you know, as a supplier in that industry. Uh, you know, the Boeing impact, the struggles they've had recently, you know, Boeing, and then some of their suppliers are also, you know, part of our ecosystem that we sell into. So, you know, navigating through some of those challenges, were already becoming tricky, if you will, pre COVID and then, you know, COVID with the shutdowns across throughout the supply chain, the ecosystem just compounded that for us. So, uh, you know, we're, we're navigating the rough waters and, uh, you know, starting to see some, uh, you know, some, some signals of, of recovery, but, uh, it's it's challenging, you know, for us, like a lot of other industrial companies out there.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and it also, I was intrigued, we talked about a couple of the kind of COVID outgrowth stories that you saw, where you were able to much more quickly than you would have ever been able in the past to get people on board with a new technology. I mean, everybody within a week or two, we were all experts about, about using video conferencing and you know checking our sound levels and was our microphone hooked up and that sort of thing. But you had a very interesting one going on because we're gonna talk more about your smart factories and all the digitization that's gone on there. You had a whole story about, uh, in fact it led to, I think when your auditing team grabbing at a technology that you would never have expected six months ago. Tell us about that.
1: Yes, this is uh, this is one of my favorite stories. As you know, uh, I get all excited talking about this one, and it deals with the Hololens, you know, from Microsoft, and you know, it's this virtual mixed reality phenomenon that's going on. And you know, what what makes me laugh the most is, you know, maybe eighteen months ago, my team, myself, we started to talk about this uh, among some of our, our brethren in the business, and you know, eighteen months ago, people looked at it and kind of chuckled. You know, why would you spend money on you know this? Goggle you would put on, you know, we're ten years away from that. You're, you're talking like Star Trek, Star Wars kind of stuff here. Um, so we, we got. Sorry. You're
0: like Tom, what do you think you work at Google? What are you doing here?
1: Yeah, if you're, we're, we're a manufacturing company. You know, you're you're not in tech. Take your sandals off and let's you know let's uh, focus on the, the the task at hand. But uh, we actually acquired a couple anyway because you know my team was anxious to try them and, and see how it would work. But boy, you know when the pandemic hit. It, uh, m- multiple success stories here, and I'm going to touch on all of if we if I can. You know, first of all, manufacturing. You think about it. We kept our factories running, but people couldn't travel. You know, we really wanted to lock down to, to avoid the spread of COVID. Uh, you know, not only our internal people, but you know, we're we're in the middle of our manufacturing modernization, so we have a lot of new equipment that may be manufactured in Germany, showing up at a factory in Tianjin, China. Well. The equipment's sitting there. We've already made the investment. We would like to start it up, but we can't get the supplier there to do factory acceptance testing, to do operator training. This is where the HoloLens stepped in. So you know, my, my team volunteered and said, look, let's leverage teams in the HoloLens. And you know, now what we've seen are several cases where our OEMs can be in a different part of the world. Uh, we're accomplishing factory acceptance testing, uh, You know, the first part runoff, operator training, it's a huge success. We've gone out and actually acquired another dozen or so HoloLens, but it gets even better. Uh, our internal audit team came to us and said, wow, you know, we have travel restrictions. How are we going to do our cycle counts? How are we going to complete our on-site audit plans at these remote locations? And, and one of the guys on my team that comes out of the finance group, he's an IT, as a business partner, he said, here, try one of these. So they've actually sent the HoloLens to a couple of the sites where internal audit had to complete audits. And now we have internal audit who can't get enough access to a HoloLens. They see the opportunity to complete their internal audits remotely. And then the last one is, uh, and I think everyone can relate to this one, you think about an EHS, environmental health and safety perspective, mm-hmm. our EHS leader has come forward and said the same thing. You know, Given the travel restrictions, we can't always get our team to the factories, whether it's to conduct an EHS audit, do EHS training. So they are also now, leveraging the HoloLens. And I, I think within the next, uh, by the end of this month, we'll be up to 30 or 35 HoloLens around the world. And the thought is if we can get one eventually in each factory, not only can the manufacturing folks leverage it, but when it comes to, uh, you know, launching new equipment, EHS, internal yeah. audits, operator training. So to me, it just brings a big smile to my face because how quickly adoption and, you know, a, a good crisis sometimes, uh, you know, it helps drive adoption and the use of innovation.
0: And yes. Yes.
1: This, this is one of my happier stories
0: I think it's and I think it speaks well to um, Essentially fostering a spirit of innovation and let's give this let's give this goofy thing a try uh, among your IT ranks, but then also the other business units you know, there's, that also I think speaks to a level of trust that has grown up about what you are doing and what technology has done for the company. Um, one of the questions we had about, we've mentioned the Azure platform and things you've done on there, and one of our um, alert watchers is wondering whether you have adopted that as a single cloud platform or whether you use some of the other providers like Google or Amazon Web Services. For
1: right now, it's a single cloud provider for us, okay. it, uh, you know, their capabilities, um, you know, from an operations perspective, cybersecurity, uh, you know, they, they've been able to, to meet our, our demands and okay. you know, it really fits into uh, a two platform strategy that we launched several years ago. You know, we really liked where Microsoft was headed, not mm-hmm. only with Azure, but you look at the power platform, you know, we've been a big SAP partner uh, for mm-hmm. 25 years. And we really said, you know, let's how do we leverage SAP and Microsoft together from a two-platform strategy? Uh, you know, there are some other solutions that we may use, but predominantly it's, you know, the first question is, well, why not SAP or Microsoft? And what we've discovered, you know, the past couple of years, especially, the more that they begin to partner, you think about the Embrace program, you know, helping SAP customers get SAP onto the Azure platform. Uh, You know some of the agreements they've had a couple years ago with Adobe on data management content management You know the more they come together, you know from my perspective as a customer of both It it makes it easier for us and now, you know We're able to sit back and figure out to meet the needs of our business to help us serve our customers What are the best capabilities of Microsoft? How do we integrate them with SAP and vice versa? uh, to get us where we want to go to achieve our objectives to execute on our strategies, and it's starting to work out well. So, long answer to the question, but it is a single cloud platform right now.
0: Well, and it actually, I find that in, you know, no matter who the vendors are involved in it. I always find stories like that encouraging because so many years I I covered technology, various technology wars, uh, starting back to when I was a reporter at Computer World and then later all my years at CIO Magazine, that having to turn IT leaders and their organizations into the integration platform was so manpower intensive. And it was, I had so many CIOs tell me over the years, we don't wanna be the one making, customizing this and working it together. So it's just, it seems like it's taken a long time for the big vendors to kind of get on board with that. But I'm 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 glad to I'm always glad to hear when they have. Now I wanted to pivot to talking about uh, we've been talking about your technology team and mentioning you know your eighty thousand customers around the world and you've got forty factories I think that are up and running. You're not doing this with thousands of IT people. You have uh, no you have a technology force of about you told me two hundred and seventy five.
1: But that's that's about right. Yes, that's correct.
0: Um, how is, how do you have that structured so that you're delivering all of this business value and doing as well as you're doing?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question. It's part of a model that we've been evolving for the past four or five years. Yes. Uh, You know, a a lot of our, our business leaders exist in the U S Europe. And when you look at us from a, a revenue perspective, you know 80% of our revenues probably come from the US and Europe age is about 20% We're trying to grow that but just because of the placement of the business leaders It makes sense for a lot of our business integration business solutioning teams to reside in the Americas and in Europe Now we have a smaller footprint of business integration and solutioning people in Bangalore But this has enabled us to really build out the Bangalore captive site it is really, you know, the IT delivery center so you know, they work hand-in-hand hand with our, our solutioning people or solutioneers, as we sometimes call them, um, to, to understand how do I convert business requirements and the technical requirements. And then this is where all the development takes place and the testing and the delivery. So you know, we're, we're able to tap into the skill sets that exist in, in the Bangalore market. I mean, talk about a hot ted, hotbed of uh, IT resources and talent. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we've been able to really leverage the Bangalore site Uh, Another site that's really uh, paying some dividends for us in Europe though is Poznan, Poland Uh, You know, we've we've gone from zero people in IT a couple years ago to I think 15 Now in in Poznan and around 40% of our European headcount is now in Poznan. So very strong talent and um, Again, you know, they provide very good support within the European region and Mm -hmm. uh, so it's 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 a balance but um, this has really enabled us to, to take on more as we build out the Bangalore location. Uh, so when you think about teams and cloud migration and smart factory and digital customer and you know keeping things running, uh, there's a lot to do with 275 people.
0: It is. And, and I think it's especially impressive because I'm sitting here reminding myself that you're a large mid-sized company headquartered in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Yes. So you're about $2 billion. You don't have to be a... 200 billion dollar company to take advantage of this. Um, Do you think as, um, I I had also asked you about whether you use a lot of exterior third parties uh, for support and to deliver services the way you're structured, and I was surprised when you told me it's really a relatively small group that you outsource the EDI support. But everything else tends to be long-term partners. Uh, talk a little bit about what makes a great partner working with a company like yours, or just with your company. Yeah,
1: yeah, that, you know that's something we, we launched a few years ago as well, when we went down this two-platform approach, and mm-hmm. you know, really looking at how do we you know create the the intelligent enterprise is our end goal. Yeah. And we do have a couple. You know, we want to leverage the ecosystem, not just of the software providers, the SAPs, the Microsofts, but you know there are a handful of uh, of other integration partners that have been with us for several years. And you know, what to me, a lot of it's about fit. You know, we, we all know when we're searching for an integration partner, or a consultant. There, there's some folks they come in. Uh, you know, during the conversation talking about their experience, their approach, it just seems like it, it gels and, and you understand each other. There's others that maybe you know, maybe a little abrasive, they don't fit as well, but we've been fortunate. We have a couple partners that have been with us for eight, 10, 12 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've worked on you know, a couple implementations for us. And then even between implementations, we, we maintain a relationship. So they're part of our strategic discussions. They're part of our roadmap and vision. And not only can they provide some inputs what they're seeing in the industry, but when it comes time for that next big event where we have funding they're already up to speed on where we have come from where we are now and where we want to get to and it's just easier to plug them in so they really in my opinion the the, the, the couple that are really close become extensions of kena and, and then you mentioned edi we do have some partners that just you know we're not edi experts they they run the edi side of the business for us and then really the rest of it is niche consulting uh, you know again when you try to manage uh, Headcount and budget, and 275 people, and you know, very proud of my team to say we have kept employment costs flat for the past four years. So you think about all the initiatives that, that we have launched and the solutions we've delivered to do that right now with flat employment cost is, is pretty uh, it, it's pretty good. And but there are times when you need a niche consultant, but we don't have the luxury of hiring people and then keeping them on board. So we do reach out every once in a while, and we'll find some some niche players that may come in and maybe it's a six month assignment, but part of the statement of work is, you know, this is the deliverable and this is what we expect, but at the same time, we do want you to ramp up some of our internal resources so we can take over support of that moving forward because I don't have the checkbook to continue to keep paying third parties on and on. So it's a bit of a balance, um, but but so far that the team has done a really good job of executing and managing that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm sure too, in the, among just your IT leaders on the different teams, that you also paid a lot of attention to um, making sure they are skilled with managing the exterior partners and understanding the business really deeply. Um, one of the things I wanted to pivot to is um, anybody who Googles your name will find, uh, no, 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 it's a good thing. Don't make a face. You never you never
1: know.
0: you talking about your smart factory framework. And I know this is something that you're, you didn't invent it. It's been uh, ongoing at Canna Metal for a while, but I wanted you to explain a little bit more about that and what the progress is toward it. It's, it's very forward-looking. It's all part of that industrial 4.0 or industry 4.0 that you hear manufacturing companies talk about. So tell us a bit about your approach to that and what that smart factory framework encompasses.
1: Uh, it's, it's another great story that we like to tell and uh, you know as you mentioned smart factory is a term that's been out there you know people call it intelligent factory we latched on to smart factory just uh, you know, to give it a name and to brand it and a lot of it goes back a couple of years ago you know if you read about kena you'll see that we embarked on a manufacturing modernization initiative you know mm-hmm. we realized for us to you know remain competitive to be able to deliver products that um, our customers expect tighter tolerances, better performance, uh, you know, there's always pricing pressures. To be able to do that, we really had to invest in our factories with, uh, you know, new equipment. And you know, new equipment's great, but you just can't put a piece of equipment on the floor and say, you know, look, I'm modernized and everything's going to be better. There's, uh, you know, we like to call it the connective tissue. It's it's how does this all hang together? How does this integrate back into the operations? and you know, we had some failed IT implementations on the factory floor a couple of years back where we were trying to leverage some of the tools that we had to, um, you know, to help streamline the operations, to bring real-time data to the plant leadership. And, you know, it was a case of IT implementing solutions and the factory just didn't know why they were implementing them. They didn't know what to do with them. And the factory also had problems articulating, what do they need? You know, how do I help you reduce lead times, improve your on-time performance? Reduce uh, mm-hmm. setups. Uh, how, what data can I give you early enough for predictive quality, predictive maintenance? So we, we were we were floundering a little bit. So we, we pulled a team together. We leveraged a you know a third party partner of ours. Uh, you know, ELogic's a company that's been working with us for about twelve or fifteen years. And we we went into a war room and just said, "Look, what's missing here? What do we have to do?" And we came up with a framework that really is based on four pillars. And you know, this is really basic and common sense. And I, I think most folks listening will say, "Wow." Yeah, and some people may be doing the same thing, but it really is the basics. And, and the four pillars of this, one, you need to have the equipment and the automation. That's a key part of it. Another was the IT-OT integration. Uh, so we really partnered more with the business. In fact, the business actually had brought on some folks with that operational technology, the OT background into Kena Metal about the same time. So we really were able to get these teams to start driving that IT-OT integration. And in fact, you know, for us a couple of years ago, a lot of folks didn't even know what OT meant. It was it was a new term. I
0: was so. just, just thinking that there was it, it in a way when we talk about Industry 4.0, I, you know, it has been talked about for a long time. Think about how long we've talked about AI and automation, probably 25 years or more, right? And yeah. then when things start really happening. It can take a little time to actually recognize that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that became the second pillar, you know, the IT-OT integration, you know, looking at, uh, you know, design to manufacture processes, my supply chain replenishment, factory scheduling, my asset management, et cetera. But there was still something missing. And the third one becomes the operational excellence or, you know, based on lean manufacturing. And, you know, it's interesting because for a while there, everybody was screaming, give me a dashboard. I need dashboards on the factory floor. Well, you know, we can put dashboards out there all day long, but if people don't understand, what do I do with that data? How yeah. do I interpret it? How do I make decisions? So what we we've also baked into this, this foundational framework is, you know, the factories have to have a certain level of operational excellence capability. Okay. Or, you know, have you trained your operators and your shop floor managers and supervisors on problem solving, issue resolution? What's this data mean? How do I interpret it? Uh, you have that continuous improvement mindset. Are you having the stand-up leapboard meetings at the start of the shift where you get that operator engagement? So we—that's a key part of it. Without that OE foundation, we also found that you know we were floundering, and then that also ties in the fourth component, which is the organizational change, the talent development. I mean, you know, this is a whole. This is a brave new world. So you know, not only are we talking about factory operators that are you know, incredible people. You know, these are folks that they would hear a machine chatter and they knew. Well, let's go, uh, you know, they're craftsmen. I go turn the knob and I get the the process back in spec. Well, now it's automation and, uh, you know, new equipment. And now there's, you know, screens and data coming at them real time. We're streaming data off the machine. So there's a whole training of the factory operator, the supervisor, and even the production planner and some of the manufacturing folks listening in, you know, they may resonate with this, you know, sadly, we, we called people planners for many years and, Really, the role of a planner was I print a production order out of SAP, I print out the part drawing out of Siemens, I put them in a plastic sleeve, I walk out in the factory floor and I drop it off. So you ask the question, well, well, what happens if a machine goes down? What if an operator calls off sick? Mm -hmm. I don't know, that's up to the supervisor to deal with. So there's a whole training element, change management on what does it mean to be a planner? So, you know, it's a disservice we would be doing to our people if we didn't identify these things and say, look, this is what the expectations are. These, This is the training you need and the tools. So we've built out that framework and and that really becomes, you know, the foundation uh, of what we build on. It, It gets into some of the details around, you know, the data, you know, to digitize everything The data's got to be there. It has to be clean. You have to have some governance around it. So that really, uh, when we put that in motion a couple of years ago, really started to get us off on the right foot. And uh, so at least we had a framework to work with as opposed to just deploying some people to the factory, implementing some tools that no one used or understood, and then there's dissatisfaction everywhere. (laughs) That was the start of
0: it. Well, and that has been certainly a long-term problem with IT when you look at all of the all the coverage that we've done in the technology press over the years there was always this disconnect between what business leaders and business people really wanted and then what IT delivered and I just I don't run into many CIOs anymore that expect to just drop something off on the doorstep and then go back to their work in IT it is so deeply integrated into the business. In fact, we've got a couple more, um, when you started mentioning the smart factory framework, we got a question about how you're using robotics, robotics in the factories. And I might even extend that into the data realm about how you're using robotic process automation, the RPA talk, talk a little bit about that.
1: Yes, I I can. So, uh, you know, you, you think of the four pillars on the smart factory, The first one I touched on was the new equipment and the automation. So there is opportunity. We are implementing robotics. Uh, It's interesting. A prior CEO that was on board a few years ago toured one of our factories, a couple of them in Europe, and he walked away and he said, wow, you know, some of our factories, they press these little parts. It's basically powder. You press it into a shape, you put it in a tray, it goes in the furnace and some other processes after that. And he was standing there in disbelief as, the press would operate, the operator would reach in, pick out one part, put it over here on this tray, reach in and get the other one. What an opportunity for automation. The same thing when it came to the end of the packaging line, you have eight people standing around a conveyor belt and you know they're picking up a part, they're doing a visual inspection, they're putting it down. This operator picks it up, puts it in a package. So you get my drift. You think about where uh, robotics and automation can come into play with picking parts, placing parts, some of the visual the quality uh, inspection tools that are out there that really frees up your people then to do more value-added work. And also, it's a, it's a quality improvement because people aren't handling parts. But there's a, that is a big part of our manufacturing engineering team on the OT side, what they've been doing to, to leverage the robotics and the automation in our factories. So how, how do you move parts from one cell to the other? Um, when it comes to RPA, it's, uh, we're, we're, we're making some progress that's primarily internal to IT at this point in time. Uh, and this ties back into you know how we've looked to streamline our IT operations. Moving to the cloud was part of it, but the team's done a very good job of how do I leverage RPA to automate some of the IT processes, some of the IT um, uh, tools, and some of the things that they had to do manually in the past, which then freed them up to be more innovative. We're now looking at uh, we, we've done a couple of things with the business on how can we use RPA to automate some of the processes uh in purchasing a little bit in finance but uh it's one of the areas we want to get into a little bit more which we're looking to balance rpa versus some of the the power app tools that microsoft has i think there's room for both of them Uh, Mm -hmm. we look at the power platform and rpa how do i automate streamline business processes take out the manual steps take out some of the excel spreadsheets if you will and, and which frees up people then to be you know do more analysis so okay. We're doing and, in those two spaces.
0: And related to that, there was one of our questions, and we have been getting. I'm sorry, I'm not able to get to every question that comes in. You, uh, everyone is as I often find you, uh, Tom. They are finding you fascinating. There Thanks. is a question about whether or not you could you share a little more about what you're doing with business analytics. And uh, I'm always interested in how those are how those change over time as CIOs get deeper and and the IT organizations get more embedded with the different business units, what that does to analytics. So take that one away for me. No,
1: that's a great question. And I'll I'll try to hit a couple of brief stories there. It's uh, an interesting story where we come from. About seven or eight years ago, uh, we used to have a a person in the business who worked uh, remote. He was out of North Carolina. He had a server in his basement. And he ran all the finance reports and modelings, all the commercial reports uh, off of access databases. So, uh, you know, we we should have uh, got our life insurance and cloned this guy. But, uh, you know, that was one of the situations you're dealing with. As much as you try to provide the right tools, uh, standardized reports, protect the data, this was still going on. Now we've moved a long way from there where we are today. And again, this is one of the other advantages we saw with the Azure cloud. Is it's enabled us to really start to you know, you you can pull this data together in a data lake Which then just opens up all kind of possibilities provide insights to the business and a real quick example just happened a few weeks ago uh, Partially covid related, you know, the cfo was looking for where are we on accounts receivables? What's our level of past due receivables because like everyone else we're looking at cash flow management and Yeah, you you know as revenue starts to fade a little bit during covid uh, cash becomes even, even more important and you know talk to some of the internal folks that maybe have done this in the past finance and IT. And it's like well we can download this data out of sap tables put it in excel and you'll have the information in about four weeks and well four weeks later you know how current is it so we got some of the same finance people to sit down with our analytics team and and we're heavy into the power bi uh, from an analytics perspective and uh, we power BI with a combination of Tableau and, and they sat down and in a matter of a week, they delivered this real time accounts receivable dashboard with drill downs. And uh, the CFO loves telling me the story. He said after he got that report, he was talking to some analysts and they asked him just kind of the same question. Where are you with data? What insights do you have? And he said, I have at my fingertips real time. Anytime I want, I can tell you where every dollar in the company is owed us by customer, what region, uh, okay. I can Pareto, what's past due, what's within zero to 30, et cetera. So, you know, this one great example of uh, what we're doing with the data. And as, as the business hears more and more of this, uh, you know, the appetite, the, the challenges, the demand is starting to outpace uh, our, our supply right now. We're
0: thinking of that, yes.
1: And we're seeing similar stories on the commercial side is, is, is we're able to integrate Power BI reports into dynamic CRM. And now your salespeople have real-time information into open orders, margin analysis by customer, by region, by part number. You know, the, the, the appetite just continues to increase. So uh, just you know, a, a couple of brief stories. There's a handful more. I'm sure uh, if when my team hears this, they'll say, why didn't you tell this story? But uh, those are just a couple of examples. You can see the power uh, of information. And, you know, the last one I'll touch on is on the factory floor. It ties back to Smart Factory. You know, we had a story from uh, one of our plants in Ohio a couple months ago, they had a scrap problem and, you know, within 24 hours or less, they were able, with the data that they were able to extract from the factory and then, you know, through, um, you know, go back through all the history, they, they identified the problem was in a powder supplying plant in a different state and they found where the operator had the wrong temperature on a furnace within 24 hours. And the plant manager will tell you, in fact, it might be in one of our Microsoft videos online, you know, this would have taken weeks in the past, if ever, to find that problem. So again, just an example how we're using data and analytics to drive real-time decision-making, provide people with insights, uh, you know, to to fix fix the business processes and uh, Mm -hmm. make changes quickly.
0: Well, and to have IT come to the rescue, which is something that, you know, we we all have to, we all have to applaud that.
1: it is, it is nice. It's, uh, but yeah, if I, if I could just add, one. Well, you know, me coming out of the business, and I, I've been in the IT side now for 15 years, it's kind of funny. I, I spent the first uh, eight or nine years of my IT career trying to get back into operations, but now I, I wouldn't go back if, uh, if, if they begged me. I, I think I tell the team all the time there's no better place to be than IT, but if I look at my leadership team in IT at least 60% of them come out of the business. So they have that business background, they aspire to the technology that gives them a level of respect, I think with the business as well. And and they're also able to look at this holistically. So it uh, it does help.
0: Well that's great. One of our <coughs> excuse me. One of our um questions that came in wanted to know a little bit more about <coughs> the kind of project management methodologies that you're using now after having some failures in the past
1: Yeah. okay no it's a great question and we actually within IT have a a program management office a PMO group that's responsible not only uh, to work with our IT business partners who are working with the business on what does the portfolio look like the portfolio prioritization how does that tie into our technology roadmap (laughs) so this circles back to those discussions I mentioned earlier as well with some of our key integration partners SAP and Microsoft at the table and say here's the business strategy Uh, How do we define a roadmap or the technology investments that we need to then drive execution? But this the PMO manages that they also have project managers that get assigned and manage the IT projects now We are in a transition. We we still do a lot of waterfall But we're slowly starting to get more and more into agile. We uh, dipped our toe in the water a couple of years ago and, and now the, the, the IT PMO is really starting to, you know, drive us more and more toward the Agile methodology. So uh, our, our digital customer experience program with the business and the commercial teams, you know, right now is using the Agile approach. So we're in a bit of state of flux right now. And, you know, it's one thing we keep talking about is, you know, the traditional waterfall approach. It, it works at times. It worked great in the past, but, you know, I'm of the belief these, uh, these monolithic, have 10 12 15 month IT projects of the past just they, they just don't resonate anymore I mean the business changes too fast you know we, we use the ones saying in IT that but uh, you know irrelevance will happen when the speed of change outside of the organization is greater than the speed of change inside so we've got to figure out how to be more you know, agile not just from the methodology but be more nimble how do you deliver solutions in, in more of a release mode to the business uh, as opposed to taking 8 10 12 months.
0: Well, that's a great point. Um, one of the questions that has come in, in terms of OE, and I think that's operator engagement.
1: Or, um, operational, or operational excellence, or?
0: Operational, it might be operational. Well, let me tell you the rest of the question.
1: Go ahead. Go ahead.
0: I think it's the biggest obstacle for people, contextuali- contextualizing and then interpreting data to make their decisions. That could, yeah. that could actually be OE on either front, couldn't it? <laughs>
1: I think it's, it, 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 there's an OE aspect there, and it's also back to the, the talent piece. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, let's face it, if, if people are not used to getting the data, you know, maybe there's new data they're seeing. Maybe they're seeing it now real time as opposed to, you know, 30 days later after the fact when it, it, it's old and stale. So, yeah, that, that is a challenge. And, and this ties into, you know, one of our bigger challenges is with the adoption. So it's great that you're streaming live data off the machine. It's back to that dashboard's great, but if if I don't understand what that data is telling me, how should I use it? uh, You know, it just it doesn't optimize the process. It doesn't help. It leaves the frustration and and lack of adoption. And then you get the questions like, "Oh, we spent all this money on smart factory. (laughs) What's the value?" So this is an area we're really focusing on right now. Is uh, you know the, the training and the understanding and sort of having that OE foundation. So, you know, the folks that are familiar with operational excellence or lean manufacturing, yeah. you know, when you have that operator engagement, and if you're working on your your operational equipment effectiveness, you're even manually you're using that data and you understand what that means. So now when I automate it, you know, it's an easier transition. So it's back to some of the basics, but it's, it's a very good point. And it's, it is an area of focus. It's not easy.
0: Yeah. Well, and this may be an unrealistic question for the time that we're living in right now, but when you think about your top technology and business initiatives going forward into 2021, um, what has anything new risen to the top of your list?
1: Um, hmm. you, you know, it's a combination. You know, One of the things that comes top of mind is, is not new, let's say, out there in the world, but for us it is, this digital customer experience uh, you know, it's a space where, you know, we've been a little bit immature in the past. You know, we had a website that, um, you know, used to be managed by a former marketing group we used to have. It came over to IT a couple of years ago. Uh, we've been doing the uh, proverbial putting lipstick on the pig for right now, um, just to upgrade it a little bit. But um, as part of our enterprise strategy, about eight months ago, you know, finally the company started to realize that. You know, digital is where it's at. Our customers, as a demographic shifts, especially with us in some of the, uh, you know, the areas that we our customers reside in, you know, a lot of these are, you know, proprietors, uh, they, they go online at night and they run their business. You know, they don't want a salesman always showing up. They want to be able to go onto a website. They want to order. They want to find a product that fits their needs. They want to be able to order it. They want to be able to check status of their order. Um, they want to chat with someone. If they have a question, they want real-time chat. Or... Uh, you also think about the demographic impact as, you know, as baby boomers start to retire, there's a lot of knowledge drain on the shop floor where these technical people understood how to, to run a machine, how to tool the machine, how to fix a scrap problem. Some of these companies either are losing that talent or they can't afford to keep them full time. So if we can offer, you know, engineering collaboration opportunities. So this is the direction we're going. And so again, you know, everyone the benchmark is the Amazon look and feel and it's been out there so it's nothing new let's say but for us in our industry you know our competitors are doing some of the same things but we realize this is a space that we have to get better in so uh, we're, we're in the middle of our journey for a digital customer experience and uh, to me that that is a, a high priority for us I, I would say continued expansion of the smart factory you know if you look at a maturity curve, we have a handful of plants that have gone through the foundation. They've connected the equipment. They're starting to optimize. And even a couple are starting to get into predictive capabilities. But the end state ultimately gets you to autonomous. And, and now it, it's not the old Warren Bennis, a man and a dog story. You know, it's I don't think we'll ever get to that point. But, you know, I mean, some people think that it's, it's lights out. You have no one in the factory. I mean, there's always a need for people. And uh, but if you think about, you know, how do we continue with this journey to mature this where eventually we can be somewhat autonomous, you know, where the machines become self-correcting based on the data. Uh, so to me, again, that's that's top of mind, uh, you know, for us. And I think just the ongoing adoption of our business users, there's still there's so many capabilities that are out there. Whether it's using Teams or Power Apps, where you know you think about a lot where people spend a lot of their time, it's the manual effort in in the back office. It's you know, the spreadsheet jockeys. It's, uh, you know, writing things down. So I I think there's a huge opportunity for us there to continue to drive, you know, the enterprise, um, the the digital workplace, if you will, the modern workplace.
0: Right. Well, and that actually segues us very nicely into talking about talent acquisition strategies. Whenever I talk with CIOs, almost always in their top three priorities is that that ongoing, the, the learning agility, I think is one of the things you called it. Um, and you are moving beyond summer internships. And, and you talked a little bit when, when we talked earlier about rotational programs and how those are changing. Tell me how you go about keeping that what, 275 people you have working for you around the world. How do you keep bringing fresh talent into You know, it's a pretty old style industry. You're, you know, Industry 4.0. It's still industry in a manufacturing company. So what are your talent acquisition strategies? Talk about that.
1: It is, and it is a challenge. I think, you know, we're all out there fighting for some of the same talent. Something we started a couple of years ago, uh, a couple of different things with from an internship perspective. um, Our leader in Bangalore came forward a few years back and said, you know, look, I can bring in a dozen or so graduate college graduates um very inexpensively let's bring them on for a year uh in, in like an intern type of uh, an apprentice kind of role let's teach them two or three technologies and what we found is uh, not only is it bring newer thinking you know just some of that uh a different thought process with uh the, the, the junior demographic but as roles have opened up they become a nice pipeline to replace talent is uh i mean i think you know the uh, the attrition rate in Bangalore is anywhere from 12 to 20%. It's hard to hold on to talent. But if you can start to groom some of that early talent, uh, we found that to be a very great opportunity for us where you know, folks get an opportunity. They know within 12 months, they have a chance to latch on to a full-time job. So that, that's given us a pretty good pipeline. We've done something similar in the States where we will bring in some uh, you know, summer interns, uh, undergrads, Mm-hmm. and even co-op them throughout the school year, something we had never done until a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, you know, they are just, uh, let, let's face it, this generation has grown up with technology, with mobility, and, sure. you know, they, they, just, they just migrate to, to the technology and look for ways to do things quicker, simpler, faster. And, and quite honestly, you know, some of the junior people I've seen now starting to push some of the more senior people that just start thinking differently. And that's been a, a very positive approach as we start to, to pair them up. Uh, additionally, the company has done a, uh, a two-year rotational program. And up until a couple of years ago, every function did their own thing. Sure. And now we've brought this together. So you've got you know two-year uh, college graduates coming in for commercial background, marketing, finance, IT. They could spend all their rotations in their area of choice. Or some cases, you may have an IT person do three six-month rotations in IT and a fourth one in supply chain. So you start to cross-pollinate some of that you know, experience and that knowledge and that mindset. And I think it was a great move, uh, you know, from our HR team to bring this together under one program, sort of all of us doing our own, you know, rotational internship program. So again, it becomes another pipeline. Some of our best talent, you know, we can look back over the last 10, 12 years, uh, we've been able to retain, you know, not everyone stays, of course, they have great opportunities, but we've been able to retain, you know, several people who are now in leadership roles within IT. And uh, it's, it's good to see
0: well, and I think of your own business background and your journey through pretty much all the major functions, right, at Kenna Metal. So in a lot of ways, you're kind of, you're, you're living proof that it, it, it can actually work out really well. Um, let's wrap up in our last few minutes with you talking about through that, you know, that, that almost four decades that we talked about in your career there at CannaMetal. Um, what are some of the things that you have really learned about leadership, uh, leadership, especially in the last four years as you took over finally as CIO, especially things that you want to pass along to some of your colleagues out there?
1: Yeah. You know, to me, probably there's a couple that really stand out and one is it is about the people and, and I'll get the name of this poem incorrect, but there is the, the poem about Everything I learned in life, I learned in kindergarten. I don't know. If yeah. you know but I mean, it, it's, it's the goal. It's yeah. the goal rule. It's, you know, treat people the way you want to be treated. I think inherently most people are good. Most people want to do a good job. And what I've seen the past four years, most folks want to be part of the solution. They want to help build the future. They get excited. You know, they, they've seen how technology has impacted their personal lives yeah. and the opportunity you know, it's back to the whole consumerization of IT concept. But to, to be part of building that future and then seeing the results, I, I found most people get excited about that. So how, how do we give them, you know, make them comfortable, let them be accountable. You know, don't, don't micromanage, don't be overbearing, but treat people like people. I mean, at the end of the day, it is back to the golden rule. And I think, uh, you know, if people feel like they're part of something and they're valued and they have positive experiences, you know, they will, they will just run through a wall for you. They will do whatever you need because they want to be part, they want to be part of something big, something good. Mm -hmm. Um, the other one is, I think, you know, just don't be afraid to take chances. Um, you know, what I learned early on in my career and part of the reason I bounced around is, you know, roles would come up and someone would say, Oh, you know, here's a job. This is going to be tough. It's one of those, you know, suicide missions, so to speak. Um, you know, know, I started raising my hands for some of those. It's, you know, if it's a, a new role, if it's something a little bit different, no one really has written a playbook on it. This is your chance to grab hold of it. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Work with others. You know, build up a core of people around you that you trust, and yeah. and take on those challenges and 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 drive them. And uh, you know, pretty soon you get a reputation. Anytime one of those uh, missions comes up, it's uh, it's like, hey, get him, he'll do it. And, but 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 it gives you that great perspective. And and I look at it this way. I'll use a little sports analogy. I would rather be in the game and I will make mistakes, but I'll learn from it and recover as opposed to being on the sideline, watching other people make the mistakes and try to learn and recover. I, I feel like I have more to add and, but I can't do it alone. I need, I need a team and people around me. So, you know, those are probably two of the, the key takeaways you know, for oh, me for several years.
0: Well, and I imagine probably a lot of your colleagues at Canon metal um, have Come to rely on that. If we've got a tough problem to solve, let's let's see what Tom thinks about it. So, one of the best
1: compliments I, I get is uh, I don't do as many projects now in this role, but when I was doing large projects, I would have you know colleagues from around the world who would say, "Hey, heard you're leading this." I loved working on that last project. Keep me in mind. And to me, that was just a huge compliment. That is as hard as it was. They wanted to be part of the next big thing. So that
0: is that is that is a great compliment. And I've been having more conversations lately with CIOs who have a a very close and personal relationship with empathy these days because of what we're all going through in this post-COVID world, whatever our new reality is going to turn into. So thank you so much, Tom, for joining us today. It has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. And I, I do apologize to our avid listeners and watchers that we weren't able to get to every one of your questions, but I hope that you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. If you did join us late, please don't despair. You can watch the full episode. It will be posted later today to CIO.com and will also be on YouTube. And I'd encourage you to take a moment to, to, to subscribe on YouTube to our IDG Tech Talk channel. You can catch both this podcast, the audio podcast will be on all the podcast platforms that you listen to now but you can also watch any of the past CIO Leadership Live episodes that are all on our YouTube channel and also on CIO.com. And I hope you all enjoyed my conversation today. With Thomas McKee Jr., who is the CIO and vice president at Kennametal, and that you'll join us for our next episode of CIO Leadership Live, which will be Monday, August 17th, again at high noon Eastern. And I'll be joined with by CIO Vipin Gupta from Toyota Financial, uh, from Toyota Financial Services. So thank you again for tuning in today. And a special thanks again to my friends at CIO.com and at the CIO Executive Council for their underwriting and sponsorship of this uh, video series, which I I enjoy so much being part of it. And I I think that our listeners and watchers are enjoying it as well. So please make a note to join us next time. Stay safe and well out there, and we will see you then. Thank you.
1: This podcast is produced by IDG Communications Incorporated.